0: The following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church. The, uh, scripture reading for our sermon this morning. we we'll be reading from Genesis chapter 3, verse 1 through 13. Now the word of the Lord. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and made uh, themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. The man and woman, the man and his wife, uh, hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, "Where are you?" And he said, "I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself." He said, "Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat?" The man said, "The woman whom you gave me, whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate." Then the Lord said to the woman, What is this you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The word of the Lord.
1: Through the years, I've, had a, I've carried around a working definition of sin in my head. It's been very helpful. And it was this. Sin is the lack of our conformity to the moral will of God In actions and attitudes and our nature. And what was good about that definition is that uh, it located that the the biggest problem with our sin is sin is in our nature, and because of sin in our nature, uh, we sin with our actions and our attitudes. And yet what was lacking is it didn't really spell that out, number one, very clearly, and number two, it failed to answer clearly, how is it that sin falls short of the glory of God? Is it as simple as we didn't do the command of God, or is it more complex, more robust than that? And it is. Don Carson calls sin the de-godding of God. When we sin, we treat God as if he were not God, as we act idolatrously in the worship and pursuit of something other than God. At our 2015 Conference for Pastors, Pastor John helpfully rooted our sinful acts and attitudes into our sinful nature, our hearts, and then describe, articulated how this sin coming out of our nature into our actions and attitudes dishonors God. So I want to read it. I want to read it to you and then I'm going to pray. I found it helpful, perhaps you will too. Pastor John said, sinning is any feeling or thought or speech or action that comes from a heart that does not treasure God over all other things. And the bottom of sin, the root of all sinning, is such a heart. A heart that prefers anything above God. A heart that does not treasure God over all other persons and all other things. And then he, he continued to draw it out. How does that fail to bring glory to God? Sin is the glory of God not honored, the holy, holiness of God not reverenced, the greatness of God not admired. The power of God, not praised. The truth of God, not sought. The wisdom of God, not esteemed. The beauty of God, not treasured. The goodness of God, not savored. The faithfulness of God, not trusted. The promises of God, not believed. The commandments of God, not obeyed the justice of God not respected, the wrath of God not feared, the grace of God not cherished, the presence of God not prized, and the person of God not loved. Father in heaven, help us now as we give our minds to your word in this first occurrence of sin in the world in the fall of Adam. Shape our minds. May, may this teaching guard us from idolatry, guard us from making shipwreck of our faith, guard us from ruining the lives of other people or allowing other people to ruin their own lives. May this text uh, send us out as as those who... Live by faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us to bring us to you. Pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. This is our third message from the book of Genesis, reviewing the foundational biblical truths taught there in Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3. Doctrine of God, the doctrine of man. That's where we've been so far in the first two weeks. Today, I'm teaching on the doctrine of sin, From Genesis chapter 3, and then next week, Pastor Ken will preach on the doctrine of Christ, mainly bouncing out of the text in which God promises that uh, the, the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. Now, these biblical truths are essential for our understanding of reality, for our understanding of what is true truth, what is real. Uh, They answer the big human questions. The doctrine of God answers the question, where is, or is there a God? The Bible answers, yes. He's our sovereign creator. The doctrine of God also answers, where did everything come from? It came from God. He made everything and he made it all for his glory. And the doctrine of man answers the question, who are we? We are creatures created by God in his image, male and female. And in this sense, we are all children of God. He is the life giver of all human beings. There is a deeper sense of our being children of God in the gospel, but it is generally true by creation. God is father and provider of us all, life giver. Also, doctrine of man answers the question, why are we here? The answer, to glorify God. That's where we've been so far, and now we come to the doctrine of sin in Genesis 3. Let me give you a little context. So now, all creation is ordered by God's word of decree. He decreed light to be distinct from darkness. Remember, there was chaos. There was a formless nothingness, and God speaks order he distinguished light from darkness, day from night, land from sea, distinctions among animals, uh, man distinct from woman, and Creator as distinct above all creation. And after creating all things, God, the Lord God, placed Adam and Eve in this verdant, peaceful, beautiful garden paradise to live in glad fellowship with Him and to eat from the tree of life, to live forever there. The first man and the first woman, they were fulfilling their God-given purpose, glorifying God, enjoying Him, and receiving His grace and generosity and faithfulness. And they were blessed by God. God blessed them in order that they would be fruitful and bear children and fill the earth with more image bearers and they had dominion over the creation to, to cultivate the creation for feud and food and beauty and flourishing, and all was as God had designed, and all was right, and they had no lack. and it was all good. I mean, don't let "good" means morally good. It's good, it's good. It's not bad, it's good. And God said, verse 29. Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth. This is chapter 2, verse 29. And every tree with the seed in its fruit, and you shall have them for food. Every plant uh, and every tree on all the earth. However, there was one prohibition that God gave Adam and Eve, one and only one, and that was the tree that is in the middle of the garden, verse 16 of chapter 2. You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in that day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. The Bible doesn't say how long Adam and Eve lived in this shalom, this paradise, this place of peace where all was as it should be. (laughs) You can speculate. They didn't have any children by the time they sinned, so I don't know how long it was. This this morning's text answers the question now. So, what went wrong? Adam and Eve rebelled against God, and they sinned. That's what went wrong. It's the worst moment, the worst moment in human history. Romans 5 says, Sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, so death spread to all men, because all sinned. My outline to walk through the narrative is is four points. Number one, the serpent Number two, the temptation. Number three, the sin. And number four, the consequences. So first, the serpent. Genesis 3, 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. Satan, You, you caught that, didn't you? Satan, the serpent, is a created being. Do not think that God from all eternity was squaring off against an eternal Satan, combating each other, good versus evil. That's not what the Bible teaches. That's, that's not it. Two equals battling it out. No, that's Star Wars. That's, that's some of the world religions. God made Satan and rules over Satan. And Satan can only do what God permits Satan to do. Satan was an angel created by God. And the Bible doesn't tell us a lot, doesn't, hardly tells us anything about how Satan rebelled against God, only that he did and that he's described as sinning from the beginning. 1 John 3, 8. It's interesting as I was looking over chapter 2 and chapter 3 carefully, (laughs) I noticed the serpent subtly demeaning God in his conversation with Eve in a way that just jumped out to me. In Genesis chapters 2 and 3, God is referred to as the Lord God 19 times. The Lord God. And yet, In speaking to Eve, Satan omits the title Lord when referring to God, suggesting to her, He's not your Lord. He's not your sovereign. And regrettably, Eve picks up on Satan's reference to God when she speaks in verse 5. So Satan is described as sinning from the beginning. His subtlety is evidenced in the sneaky way. He de-gods God of his lordship and sovereignty and his title use. Satan is the adversary of God, hell-bent on defaming the glory of God. He's described as the rebel ruler of this world. And As God's enemy, he is the enemy of human beings, and in particular, God's people, as he's described as prowling around like a hungry lion looking for someone to eat, to devour. Satan's work is to kill and to steal and to destroy. As I said, he's crafty. He masquerades himself as an angel of light. As good. And then he presents distorted biblical truth or flat out lies to deceive and lead people into joining him in rebellion against God. And the Bible even describes Satan as blinding the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the glory of God in the face of Christ in the gospel. Scrolling ahead to what is yet to come when Christ returns the book of Revelation describes Satan not as a little garden serpent but as quote the great dragon that ancient serpent was called the devil and Satan the deceiver of the whole world and then Revelation describes, as promised in Genesis 3, that the descendant of Eve, whom we know as Jesus Christ, the Son of God, will return and he will crush the head of the serpent, the dragon, and dispatch him to eternal punishment and torment forever. That's Satan. Point number two the temptation. The the serpent comes to Eve now distorting the word that God has spoken. It's in verse 1. Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? The implication being God is not generous. He's stingy. He's miserly. He withholds good things from... You're going to starve if you can't eat anything in the garden. And... Unfortunately, Eve partially corrects the serpent, but she leaves out the fact that God had given every tree and every plant to them except one. Here's what Eve says in reply. Verse 2, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. The truth was, any, all. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. And Satan pounces right on that warning of God's, lest you die. Verse four: You, you will not die. So now the temptation has grown from doubting God's goodness in provision. Actually, I could go back to de- denying His sovereignty, doubting God's goodness. Now, to doubting, contradicting God's truthfulness. You will not, God is lying to you. He's not telling you the truth. Satan continues, verse 5 For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. So now the temptation has grown to become like God not mere image bearers, but become like God and have the ability to determine good from evil for ourselves. It sounds just like the messages in the air today. It's the temptation, now the sin. You know, you may be thinking... Well, look, if Satan is the one bringing the temptation, isn't he responsible for the sin? I mean, aren't Adam and Eve just victims? They can't help it. The answer is no. No. James 1 is very helpful. Verses 14 and 15. Here it says, of all temptations, this is what happens. Each person, when tempted, is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then, desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. So, Adam and Eve sinned, fell for the temptation, because. They were lured and enticed by their own desire. Another way to say it is, Eve sinned because she wanted to. Adam sinned because he wanted to. Don't do the victimization thing on them. They are responsible for their sin. Satan is responsible for his temptation. But that does not take away their culpability for their sin. You can see it spelled out here. Eve sinned because she desired what Satan promised. Uh, she, she saw that the tree was good for food. Look at that tree. It's good. It's satisfying. And that it was a delight to the eyes. Oh, that, that fruit is beautiful. I want it. And the tree was to be desired to make one wise. I want to be like God and call the shots of good and bad myself. And she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. There's the sin. (laughs) The the worst event in human history summed up in in one verse. Verse 6 makes explicit that Adam was with her. And up to this point in the narrative, there's no mention of Adam. However, Adam's presence the whole time is implied by the use of the plural pronoun you at several points in the text, such as when the serpent speaks to them. You, plural, in verses 4 and 5. So this is the colossal failure of Adam to speak against the lies and the temptations of Satan on behalf of his wife and on behalf of the human race. moment in human history and sin came into the world and death came to all human beings because of it now I'm getting to number four the consequences one of which I just mentioned I'm going to put them in four categories alienation judgment inherited sin and futility in creation So now later that day, after they had sinned, as the cool of the evening settled over the garden, Adam and Eve heard the Lord God approaching. And perhaps it was a daily pattern. I mean, I think for how many days they lived there, maybe this was the evening pattern. You know, the sun starts going down, the cool of the evening comes, they're going to take a walk with God and they're going to talk with him and they're going to fellowship with him. It was just a beautiful scene in my mind. But now for the first time, when they heard God approaching, verse 8 says, the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. And God called out, Adam, Eve, where are you? And Adam answered, verse 10, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Now they're afraid of God. Alienation. Shame and guilt. Verse 7. Immediately the text had said after they ate the eyes of both were open, and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Imagine what it would have been like to have never known what it was to do wrong. We, we can't comprehend it, but imagine it. Never, know, never having done wrong, never knowing what it feels like, and then directly dishonoring and disobeying God in this way. They ran and they hid themselves because they were afraid of God and because they felt the sin or the shame and their guilt of their sin. They wanted to get away. The guilt was too much. Third, self-justification in this estrangement, this alienation with God, this estrangement, shame and guilt, and then self-justification comes. You know, God says to them, verse 11, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? And rather than straightforwardly saying, we did. Adam blames his sin first on God and then on Eve, and then Eve blames her sin on the serpent. See it there, verse 12. The woman, this is Adam answering God's question, Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? Adam answers, verse 12. The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Have you eaten it? The woman you gave me, she gave it to me and I ate. Hear the dodge of responsibility and a bit of self-justification. And then the Lord said to the woman, the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. (sighs) So the consequences, that's the alienation, that's the broken relationship with God. Second, God's judgment. First, God spoke judgment on the serpent. A curse, along with the prophetic promise that the descendant of the woman would crush his head in verse 15. And then God spoke a curse on the man and the woman. To the woman, he said, you'll have pain in childbirth. And secondly, her desire would be contrary to her her husband's leadership, to her husband's headship. And God told the man that from now on the ground itself would be cursed and he would work and toil for food and provision and life with sweat and pain. Mercifully, God clothed them with something better than fig leaves as he clothed them with garments of skins. Verse 21, which is, The first killing in the creation is God killing an animal to clothe Adam and Eve. It's a pointer to God offering his son to cover us, to be the atonement for our sins. And God, true to his word of warning, pronounced that they and all their descendants would be banished from the garden. And no longer have access to the tree of life. He wasn't kidding when he said, you take of that, you will die. Verse 23. The Lord God sent him, as Adam with Eve, out of the garden to work. To work the ground from which he was taken. And he drove out the man. And at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. And so the tree of life, eternal life was kept from them and human beings would surely die. Having died spiritually in relationship to God, they would die physically as well. Consequences. Alienation with God, God's judgment, and now inherited sin. This is where sinful nature comes to us. As a consequence of the fall of Adam, he being the firstborn head of the human race, his fall into sin became the fall of all his descendants. We have inherited a sinful nature in which sin's depravity infects all of our being. We call it total depravity, not because we're as sinful as we could be, but because sin totally infects everything that we are and do and think and desire. Hopes that I'm going to stand before God and the the good will outweigh the bad. Sin's in here in our nature. The good, the good will never outweigh the bad. We are born enslaved to sin and unable to overcome sin's temptations. And in this way, Adam's corruption and guilt and condemnation and punishment and death have become ours. All of us. human beings. The saying is true. The heart of the human problem is the human heart. We will not understand sin if we merely think of sin as doing bad things. Instead, we are sinful by nature, rebellious of God by nature, And the reason that we do sins, the reason that we sin, is because we are sinners by nature in the heart. It's the third consequence. And then the fourth, futility in creation. I'll just mention it here. Romans 8 says that due to the fall, in Genesis 3, that all creation has been subjected to futility. By Adam's fall, Creation has been put in bondage to corruption. And we're plagued by this corruption. Countless illnesses, calamities, decay, losses. And yet the creation groans, longing for the day when Christ comes and restores the new heavens and the new earth. Then creation will be set free, along with the people of God, to live in the new creation forever and ever and ever by His mercies to us. In Christ Jesus. So those are the consequences of the fall. Now, how do we relate to sin now? How do we as human beings right now relate to sin? Well, first, our only hope is Jesus. Our only hope is Jesus. He came into the world to save sinners. He came into the world to destroy the works of the devil. And he offers himself to all people as Savior and Lord. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. Come, receive from me. I'll give you rest. Rest from your guilt and rest from your shame. Covering for your sins by my death. I'll clothe you with my righteousness and give you a bright hope of all eternity. I'll put my spirit in you, God says. I'll take out your heart of stone. I'll put to death that old nature in you and give you a heart of flesh, a new nature, a new heart to cause you to desire me in faith and love and worship. Our only hope is Jesus. So if you don't know Jesus, this sermon ought to be a huge weight. I'm saying, what hope is there? I'm saying, look to Jesus. Go to Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins and for your reconciliation with God and hope of all eternity. And those of us who have come to Jesus, how do we respond? We make no peace with our sins. If by the Spirit we put to death the deeds of the body, we will live. We fight our sins. We fight the fight of faith every day. And you know what? Every day we need forgiveness. Remember the Lord's Prayer? Lord, give us this day our daily bread. Oh yeah, and daily forgive us our sins. We fight the fight of faith. We, we live by faith in the Son of God who loved us. We receive his forgiveness day by day. We put to death the old man in us. We, we, we put on the new man that God is making us to be in conformity to Christ. One more thing, and it relates to Sanctity of Life Sunday. And it relates to Ethnic Harmony Sunday last week. And other things as well. Satan's temptation and lies are still actively being spoken and heard in this world. I read a quote from Kevin DeYoung, Pastor Kevin DeYoung. He says. He observes that Satan does not tempt people by appearing so much as a serpent anymore. But more often, I imagine, he speaks through the half-truths and quarter-truths we find in a thousand movies, television shows, and news reports. His voice can be heard in our universities and from the halls of power. If we listen carefully, we, we may detect his slithering speech in even Christian books and in spiritual blogs and even from some pastors in churches. So these messages, these half truths, these temptations are going out. And here, here's here's what I want to say. On Sanctity of Life Sunday, and it relates to those other things. We don't want to be like Adam. We don't want to just sit by and watch. As Eve gets tempted, God's not Lord. He's not good. He can't be trusted. He lies. This is better. We don't want to just sit there and be silent and watch. We have to speak. We have to stand up for what is true. We have to speak for God of his glory and of his grace Yeah, the messages abound in our day. There is no God, and we 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 can't let that go. We said no. God is, He is the ultimate reality. And you decide what's good and evil. We said, No, 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 no. God decides what's good and evil. He is God, He has spoken. It's not left for us to guess. And the messages come that abortion or euthanasia, all kinds of abortion, abortion of the disabled, abortion of of sex selection, uh, euthanasia, are good. We say, no, no, no. God created all human beings in his image, and we are therefore of great worth. Hence the call to love our neighbors. And when the messages come, the racial discrimination is good. It's, it's a good that we got to do this. Of course, those people are bad and we do the same. No, no, no. God created us in his own image, all of us. We are therefore of great worth. And, We pursue racial harmony in the church because Christ has purchased people from every tribe and tongue and gathered us together. And he calls us again to love our neighbors. The worth of people is not determined by how old they are, whether they're in the womb or out of the womb, or by the color of their skin or their ethnicity. The worth of people is determined by God. And when we hear the messages of gender fluidity, as normal, we say, no, no. God created us in his own image, male and female. He created them. So we, we don't want to be like Adam. May we not be like Adam. We have to speak for what God has said when these messages of temptation are directly contrary to God and to God's word and to the well-being of people. And the glory of his name. So my wife and I have been planning to join the march at the Capitol tomorrow at noon. I think we will. I have a little bronchitis that might slow me down a little bit, but we'll decide tomorrow. Um, that's why we engage in speaking uh, against these widely held, swirling, acceptable movements of sin in our culture, that demean the value of life, demean the value of the various ethnicities of the world, and demean the the worth of male and female, the design and creation of God in order that human beings would marry one another and have children. So may God give us great grace to be humble and to be bold and not be like Adam. May we love the people of our world who are being so led astray in order to speak the truth to them, in order to bring them to God through Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thanks so much for your word, It's a heavy word, and yet it is good. If we don't get this, we will not understand how great and glorious is the gospel and the immense salvation that's ours in Christ Jesus. So may we get this, and may we live accordingly in our fight of faith, and as we speak, unlike Adam, but as we speak and not let the sins of the age go by without speaking the truth. Help us, I pray, for the glory of your name. In Jesus' name, amen.